I think a lot of the personal financial gurus out there, a lot of the talking heads, a lot of the blog posts and the podcasts talk about keeping more like six to 12 months aside. But quite frankly, we think that's way too much money sitting in cash. And entrepreneurs, I mean, you got to be lean. We think of your emergency fund as your first line of defense, not your only line of defense. Cash, or rather, the lack of cash, is the number one reason that businesses go under. Understanding the flow of cash through your business and how to manage it is one of the most useful skills you can learn as a business owner. I'm Susan Bowles, and you're listening to Break the Ceiling, the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. This month, we're talking about risk and resilience in your business. And the first thing that most people think of when I start talking about risk is cash. Well, there are tons of different risks that can affect your business. And we talked a whole bunch about these in the last episode with Jaquette Timmons. Financial risks are usually the most pressing in business because without a solid financial foundation, eventually won't have a business. Cash management and access to capital are routinely noted as the top two reasons businesses shut down. And cash flow is also usually the biggest concern that new clients bring up when I start working with them. Obviously, I can't teach you all about cash flow and cash flow management in a 30-minute podcast episode because there's a lot to unpack here. But we can tackle one of the most pressing issues for lots of business owners. How to manage inconsistent cash flow and the interaction of your personal cash flow and your business cash flow. So your bills tend to be pretty consistent. The electric bill shows up on the same day every month, but your income doesn't always follow the same pattern. Sure, you might have some standard retainer clients, but more often than not, sales don't show up consistently on the same day every month. How much you bring into your business might change dramatically each month. Maybe you're in a business where there are real seasonal swings, or you operate on more of a launch model and you only have income coming in once a year or maybe only a few times a year. Those types of business models mean that your understanding of how to manage your cash is even more essential. But trying to improve your understanding and skills around cash management prompts questions. How much cash should you hold in your business accounts and how much should you move into your personal accounts? What if you have a cash crisis in your business? How does that impact your personal finances and what should you do about it? How much of a cash reserve should you really have on hand to be safe? That's what I wanted to talk to this week's guest about. Meet Priya Milani. She's the founder of Stash Wealth, which is a financial planning and investment management firm for Henry's. Now, you'll hear us mention that term a few times throughout the episode. Henry's stands for high earners, not rich yet. And disillusioned with Wall Street, Priya left Merrill Lynch to address what she recognized as a huge gap in the industry, financial services for young people who are largely ignored by traditional firms. She's been dubbed the rebel of Wall Street, and she wants to change the way young professionals think about money by empowering them to get their financial shit together. And we're talking about how to balance your personal and business cash needs and some strategies for making sure there's always enough cash on hand. Hey, Priya, thanks so much for coming here today. Hey, Susan, thanks for having me. So for a lot of businesses, the cash coming in the door can be really inconsistent 
or it can fluctuate monthly or seasonally, but everybody still has mortgages to pay and kids to put through school and bills that actually do come in every month. So how do you approach managing that inconsistent income with those pretty incon or pretty consistent expenses? That is a great question. Um, and after working with tons and tons of entrepreneurs here at Stash Wealth, um, we came up with a pretty cool concept. We think it's pretty cool. Um, that really helps to manage that, that consistent, um, expenses. You just got to pay for life with the more, um, inconsistent income that comes, uh, with having a small business or a new business, um, or whatever it is. So what we typically do is we have actually, we actually have clients set up, um, a separate bank account. We call it a monthly reserve account. And tell me if you've kind of heard this or thought of this. Uh, it's pretty straightforward and makes a lot of logical sense once you think about it. But let's assume you're pulling an inconsistent amount of money out of your business, uh, in your income, um, just depending on how revenue might look for the month. Um, ideally, what we would say is instead of depositing that money that you pull out of your business into your primary checking account where you would use it to pay bills, put it into actually a completely separate bank account. Um, we usually tell clients actually to use in this case, like an online savings account. So, uh, because as I'll explain, the money's going to kind of be building up in that account and it's nice to, to have a little higher yield on it. We call it a monthly reserve. So you, like, like, let's say you use an online bank, you could set up a savings account, you could nickname it monthly reserve account, and you would funnel the money you pull out of your business into that account. Then from there, what we typically do is we have you set up an automation from that monthly reserve account into your primary checking account, the account from which you pay bills. Um, and you you could set that up month, once a month. You could set it up maybe more bi-monthly, sort of similar to like how a traditional paycheck works. And what's really interesting about this is that that monthly reserve account, essentially it grows when you pull more money out of your business. Um, and it may not get as much money on, on months that the revenue is slightly lighter and sales are lower. But over time, because you've set up this consistent amount going into your checking account, you almost feel like you're drawing a consistent salary and you don't set yourself up for, oh, well, wow, I have extra in my checking account this month because I pulled more from the business because we had more revenue. And then I've got to cut back my lifestyle, which is really frustrating and very difficult to do. You actually set yourself up and gradually work yourself into, um, um, a, a more uh, expenses, expensive lifestyle once your business revenue can support that. So to clarify, business revenue or your income that you pull goes into a savings account or a checking account. It can be either. And then you set up a consistent equal amount um, automatic transfer into your checking account. And that is what you consider your salary. No, that totally makes sense. I think, um, so I have a lot of listeners that follow the Profit First system, if you're familiar with Profit First. Um, Very familiar, yeah. And a lot of the, I'm just thinking that sounds a lot like the um, owner's compensation account from Profit First, which is essentially where I, I think um, some folks have this set up more on the business side than the personal side, but yeah. definitely I love the idea that you could kind of Put it either place, depending on um, what other systems you're following in your business. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And in some cases, it does make sense to have it in, to keep it on the business side. Um, but to be able to bring it into your personal side is also um, an option that people have. You can you can certainly do that. You have to work with your tax professional, um, but, but certainly something you can do. So from your perspective, how would you kind of approach deciding 
that question of how much how much do you how much cash do you keep laying around on the business side versus the personal side um how how do you kind of um advise your clients on that takeaway because there's so much flexibility yeah <laughs> yeah there is and this is where it gets hairy for most people yes like uh, <laughs> Um, you well, can do pretty much anything. What are you supposed yeah, to do? Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's funny that you just mentioned profit first, because, um, when I think about this question, that's exactly where I go. We highly recommend, and I, I actually even did, uh, the profit first podcast a couple, uh, maybe about a year ago with, with Mike McCallowitz, um, because we are big uh, proponents of that profit first model. It, it solves for a very common entrepreneurial pain point, just mostly as you know, and it sounds like you and your audience have spoken about, um, you just never know. Most entrepreneurs just never know when their business is profitable, how much to pay themselves, et cetera. So that book really um, helps to solve for that pain point and suggests sort of divvying up your revenue periodically, as you know, into those various buckets. And that really helps you prioritize. Um, I think depending on whether or not you have employees also factors into how much money you might want to keep aside. Uh on the business side of things, um, maybe three to six months worth, worth of payroll. Um, but there are different factors I think to consider at various stages in your business life cycle. Um, but certainly once employees come into the picture, you never want to miss payroll. So that's one of the bigger things, like knowing what your fixed expenses are for the business and payroll being one of those, um, that really can help you understand and, and decide what might be best for your business. Um, on the personal front, we typically advise our uh, Henry's here at Stash. Uh, Henry stands for high earner, not rich yet. That's what we call our clients. Um, we typically advise our Henry's to keep about three months worth of their fixed expenses in a dedicated emergency fund. Um, that's that's sounds crazy to most people. I think a lot of the personal financial gurus out there, a lot of the talking heads, a lot of the blog posts and the podcasts talk about keeping more like six to 12 months aside. Um, but quite frankly, we think that's way too much money sitting in cash and entrepreneurs. I mean, you gotta be lean. Three months is really uh, the right number. We think of your emergency fund and that's what we need. three months worth of your fixed expenses in a dedicated emergency fund. We think of your emergency fund as your first line of defense not your only line of defense. So that's so why on the personal side, it's just three months. Talk to me a little bit about um, how that line of defense. So if the emergency fund is your first kind of bucket, what are some of the other buckets that would come after that? Say if you are dedicating savings and you're, you fill up your emergency cash, what, what do you, where do you head next? Yeah, great, great question. And I'll just back up a step. So before you even tap your emergency fund, it's a there's a good chance, hopefully, um, if you've been earning and pulling in income from your business for a, a period of time, um, that you're going to have a bit of buildup in your monthly reserve. So your monthly reserve for an entrepreneur, um, specifically, is going to get drained down. Then you go to your emergency fund. After you've built up that three months worth of your emergency fund, that's when you start building up other savings, right? So you might be saving up for a down payment. You might be saving up for your kid's college. You might be saving up. Um, I, I use the word saving, but what I really mean is saving and investing. So mm -hmm. let's say you do drain down your emergency fund. The idea behind that three months is to allow you to strategically and not in a panic um, unwind money that you might have invested for mid or longer term goals. 
one of the biggest mistakes I used to see really, really rich people make when I worked um, on Wall Street was they kind of took that for granted. They didn't keep an emergency fund. So if shit hit the fan, the first place they went was their investments. And the last thing you want to do is rush to sell. Like imagine if you were in a panic and I don't know if you've been watching the markets, but they've like crashing. <laughs> yeah. Like imagine if you didn't have your emergency fund, you would have had to sell to come up with that cash. And the past couple, the past week, two weeks, three weeks have been a really, really bad time to sell. Giving yourself that three months would have allowed you the time, just afforded you the time to slowly and methodically work your money out of the market, um, which a, a financial professional can help you to do. Um, but but you want to do that thoughtfully. You never want to rush and panic and have to sell because you might have to sell when the markets are down. And, and that sucks. That's just more money that you've just then lost in, in a time when you're draining down on your overall net worth. Um, so that's, that's why that emergency fund is your first line of defense. It's not your credit card. <laughs> um, <laughs> certainly some people use their credit card as an emergency fund, but, um, mathematically that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, you're really going in reverse, um, expeditiously in reverse. Um, so, uh, the emergency fund, maybe other savings you have liquid, maybe your investments. And then eventually if you're really shit hits the fan kind of situation, um, your credit card, but there are even other options besides that. Okay. So outside of, um, the hitting of the credit cards, what are some kind Yikes. of money management things that you see entrepreneurs kind of consistently messing up on or consistently maybe going the wrong direction? Um, you know, one of the things that we see people do, um, when they're transitioning from corporate or a regular paying job, steady job to entrepreneurship, which is not always so steady, um, is they don't create enough of a runway for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, really thinking that uh, they sort of jump the gun, the gun in, in, in leaving their job. Um, and, and that's a really, really dangerous thing. So creating an adequate runway is certainly one way to really help solidify your venture into entrepreneurship. Um, I think that's really, really important. And then I guess more uh, applicable to today's topic even is we oftentimes, and, and this is certainly one of the pain points that Profit First solves for, is um, seeing entrepreneurs just focus on their businesses so much that they let their personal finances just fall to the wayside. Sometimes they even have spouses <laughs> and kids and that gets, you know, I mean, like it's a very stressful situation. If you're, if your family just sees you putting so much energy into your business and it's, it's getting a little crazy on the personal side. So like just ignoring your personal finances when you're, and it's really easy to do, right? Like when you're, you know, hell bent on making this thing work, uh, whatever it is you're doing, it's very easy to lose track or to just push personal stuff to the side. Um, so that's definitely something that we see people messing up on and then coming to us when it's a little bit too late. And how do we backtrack and how do we rebuild that foundation? Do you think know. there's an emotional component to that? So in prior businesses, I've definitely been in the position where like your personal finances aren't necessarily where you would like them to be. And yeah. so it's easier to just ignore, ignore. it and pretend mm -hmm. it's not happening. Mm -hmm than to proactively yeah. deal with it. Yeah, of course. Um, we deal, we actually at Stash, it's almost a joke that 80% of what we do is therapy. The numbers are the easy part. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, 
but but absolutely it's just and i mean this sounds kind of mean to say but i think entrepreneurs have to have the thick skin to hear it like if you're not willing to address and face your fi- face like what's happening with your finances on the personal front it, I, I don't know what that says for you as an entrepreneur because especially if you're like the ceo or like in a in a, in a, a sort of executive or a role that handles finances for your business like you can't ignore it you have to address no. it so, um, and it only gets worse when you do. Right, exactly. So <laughs> if you're the kind of person who's ignoring it on the personal side, you really want to take a long, hard look at yourself before you decide to venture into entrepreneurship because that's a skill set you just need to be able to like tough it out and deal with what might look ridiculously cr- uh, just scary and, and figure it, figure it out. Um, yeah, that's super, super true about the emotional side. Um, and then also I think this is somewhat tangential is just seeing people who invest in their businesses for way too long before starting to think through the ROI of those investments. Like, I think Mm -hmm. it's very, it's very, it's, it's, it's almost inevitable in the beginning of your business that you, you will sort of make these investments without really knowing where they will lead. Cause you have to experiment, you have to try things, you have to fail. Um, but like I said earlier, like maybe at the point when you have employees, that's when you have to start thinking a little bit more cri- critically and, and paying closer attention to like, what is the return on investment I expect? Like, what are my KPIs? Like, what what do we need to make happen? Um, I think I certainly as an entrepreneur took much bigger risks when I was the only one on payroll. Well, because there's, it's it's a totally different experience, I think, when you're the only person that's really impacted by the decisions that you're making in your business and you know you know maybe personally you know that you have some savings and if you don't end up paying yourself this month no big deal because you've got that reserve versus you know that you have so many people depending on you that you can't you can't fail or you need a much bigger cushion i think and I love Trader Joe's burritos. So for me, it was it's really easy if <laughs> shit hit the fan. I just go back to my burrito diet. Um, they're really, really good. So yeah, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I'm so jealous. I haven't lived anywhere with a Trader Joe's in like a decade. And every time I'm in a city where I'm like, oh, there's a Trader Joe's, we're going. We're yeah. I'm filling my suitcase up right now. Thanks so much. Love that frozen food aisle. They have all the good, all the good stuff. Um, they do. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I'll mention maybe on the, um, what what we see entrepreneurs messing up on from money management, this is, I was thinking about this one and it's definitely hypocritical for me to mention, but we almost always, uh, tell entrepreneurs to avoid tapping their 401k to fund their business. Mm -hmm. Um, but personally it it was actually something that I did, uh, (laughs) which is. Yeah, just just crazy. And like I said, super hypocritical of me to give this advice. But, um, you know, given success rates, it's it's a very risky thing to do. And maybe if you have proof of concept or an MVP, but not simply to just try out an idea that may or may not work. Um, Because, yeah, that's 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 on the personal side, talking going back to talking about, like, you know, letting your personal finances fall to the wayside. Yeah, I uh, so my husband and I, we bought um, two very capital heavy businesses early on in our business ownership. We bought a a guest ranch up in northwestern Colorado. And then um, after we sold that, we um, opened a retail running store, like a physical location. And both of those were such capital heavy businesses Mm -hmm. that we luckily we'd been you know living well below our means and we had a crap ton of retirement saved up and um that was just where our and we were really young you know we were in our (laughs) early early 30s i guess um 
And so for us, it was a calculated risk that in fact did not pay off. So I will second you <laughs> and say that, you know, oh. they were very capital heavy businesses that that's how we kept them running for a while. And um, that it was a, a pretty big impact. And it also really impacted my decision to start ScaleSpark, which is zero capital, <laughs> essentially yeah. startup. Um, and why when a lot of folks come to me with, hey, I'm going to start this physical business. I'm like, Do you, does it really have to be physical? Mm. Like, think about the the capital that's that you're going to toss in there, um, which is sort of ancillary. But I, yeah, I think there's like a romantic notion in a way behind like, you know, it just feels so oh, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to invest it and it's going to pay off. And it it just feels so I don't know. I, I get that sense from people and probably even felt it myself that it's just, there's this romantic notion behind it, but it's not in, in, in as you can speak to, it's not, <laughs> not romantic, um, and, uh, can get pretty ugly fast. So you really want to be thoughtful about maintaining your, um, the integrity of your personal financial foundation so that you have something to fall back on. Yeah, absolutely. So, Talk to me a little bit about um, the benefits of working with a financial advisor. A lot of our listeners, and I think business owners in general, don't necessarily understand the distinction between the different people that you might have on your financial team. Um, so talk to me about where the financial advisor sits in that kind of financial advisory board of a business owner and why, why there's somebody you would want on your team. Yeah, that's a, a really a great way of putting it. Um, I'll, I'll start with that. And, for, and first of all, like just for the record, given the fact that we're in the financial advisory and planning <laughs> business, I, I, I kind of hate this question because it feels so self-serving. Um, and no, quite frankly, I think, you know, well, to, I, to I, me, I think it's more of um, like people really don't understand. Yeah, the difference between a financial advisor and an accountant and a bookkeeper and a CFO or a controller or like, when would you want one of those people? And what you what should you be looking for? Yeah, and that's the thing. The word financial advisor, it can be defined. Um, there's no like standard definition, like an in insurance salesperson is technically allowed to call themselves a financial advisor. Um, and so it gets a little tricky, but traditional Wall Street financial advisor, typically they they sort of uh, dub themselves a quarterback of your financial life. Um, so they might be the ones to help you pull together all the other specialists, like the tax specialist, the estate planning, the, um, small business legal, even, uh, they sort of sit between all those people and liaise with all the different, uh, other types of specialists, um, is what, what I would really say I, for us. I mean, like, the way we think of a financial advisor at Stash Wealth, it, it really is more qualitative than quantitative. Um, and it, it, it's, it's uh, someone who helps with 
the little decisions from saving and budgeting and using the right credit card all the way through the more advanced uh, decisions of what should the asset allocation be of your 401k or in the case of an entrepreneur, probably a SEP account um, or, you know, things like that. Um, but but yeah, that's, that's sort of the traditional way to describe a financial advisor. Um, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with the, even the term itself. Um, we don't like using the term at Stash Wealth uh, because I think like when you think of the Wall Street traditional financial advisor, especially after 2008, 2009, they really lost lost their reputation. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's someone who you think of is like, oh, they're going to help make my investments do X per year or outpace the market. Um, And and the truth is, if a financial advisor is ever telling you that they can get you X percent return in a year, uh, it's illegal. Run and run fast. Like nobody (laughs) should be guaranteeing you performance. Um, So you don't necessarily want to pick a financial advisor for that specific reason. I think of a financial advisor in uh, there are three three real reasons to pick a financial advisor. One might be that you um, are focusing on your business and you want to delegate some of the responsibility of the financial stuff maybe to someone like even like a CFO is a very appropriate person. Um, so someone in like your situation where you uh, you can do that. I started out in my business by doing it myself. But at a certain point when you're um, like, let's say a founder, uh, you need to start addressing other things. You might just want to delegate that to someone. That doesn't mean you delegate the knowledge of. And I think that's a really important distinction to make, mm-hmm. especially for entrepreneurs. As a CEO, you are responsible for understanding those spreadsheets backwards and forwards. Um, but there can be someone who helps you maintain them and helps translate them to you, but you're ultimately the, the person who's in charge of those. So um, w- while you might not want to deal with it, um, it's your responsibility. Um, and then oftentimes, and I'm sure maybe you experience this with clients, like just having someone to chat through various financial decisions. This is why I say it's more qualitative than yeah. quantitative. Um, a lot of times maybe you feel like your gut instinct is telling you what to do with your business or to do with your personal finances, but it's really nice to have someone to chat through the pros and cons who's seen this a hundred or a thousand times and can say like, okay, I saw how this worked for this entrepreneur. Maybe it'll work that way for you, but here are some things to consider. Um, so just having that like companion to chat with is oftentimes the role of a financial financial advisor. Um, that's, that's, and that's a really important one. Just that, that, that's where the advice and guidance comes from. And then, um, sometimes some people just need someone to hold them hand, uh, hold their hand or just keep them accountable. Um, I'll give you an example that relates to investing because I think it's a super, super powerful one. Um, and this is not necessarily for an entrepreneur, but just like, uh, on the personal front, like if you were using a financial advisor, um, to help you with your investments. Okay. Let's say back in 2008, 2009, when the markets corrected, um, they corrected almost 40%, like let's say the S and P most people who didn't have someone to hold their hand or didn't trust the person who was holding their hand, they freaked out, they panicked and they sold their investments at the bottom of the market, realizing that 40% loss People who had someone to hold their hand, had someone to guide them properly, if they had a a financial advisor worth their weight in salt, then like they are up over 300% today. Hmm. So sometimes the job of a financial advisor is just to prevent you from being your own worst enemy and freaking out and panicking and holding your hand and saying like, don't look, this is going to pass and, and, you know, don't make a short-term decision when you're a long-term investor. Um, so I think that is also a really important part of it is just that, that partner, someone to hold you accountable. Um, and then obviously delegating some of the responsibilities. Those are probably the main reasons I think a financial advisor is is handy. No, I love those. 
Um, and I think there is real value in having an outside person who's not as emotionally invested in your business and your finances right. as you are to be that like voice of reason when entrepreneurs are like, I have this great idea. You're like, yeah, but that that is a great idea. But right, let's take a minute and let's think about how this is going to impact all those other things that you want to do and see if this is really the right thing for you. And like you were mentioning in the market, you know, if if the stuff is hitting the fan, you yeah. want somebody to be like, it's going to be okay. Like just, yeah. just don't look and it's going to be fine. Yeah. I like what you brought up just now, because I think that's also, uh, that's, that's really what we do here all day, every day is just helping people balance their idea or their new goal in context of all their other goals. Like, Hey, we want to have another child. Um, okay. But how does that affect, like, you also want to put the two kids you have in private school and you are trying to retire by the time you're 55. Um, you know, so like, just how do you balance all those things and they can really help you navigate. Does that make sense? How to make it make sense? Like how to plan for it just so you're not like, Oh, well, we just made this decision and now we're not trying to deal with it. Yeah. I think, um, it's really hard sometimes to do that for yourself in your own head to be able to, balance your own priorities and really see the impact of what your decisions are going to have because you're so emotionally invested in either your business or your personal stuff like it's yours mm -hmm. so you're going to be emotionally invested in it but um having somebody without that emotional tie i think can be so powerful totally so if you could offer maybe one tip, the one thing that you think business owners should really be thinking about with their money, what would that be? Uh, you know, as I was thinking about this, I thought that one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is um, your business's credit score. Mm. I don't know if you talk about that a lot on the podcast, but we have not. Yeah, let's, it's like let's a really do. important thing. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, it's just like we live in this age where every entrepreneur thinks the way to success is got to find a VC, got to find an angel, got to raise money. Like that is not the path that like ninety eight percent of businesses take, and the reason why, or I should say, the alternate route often is borrowing money from, let's say, a bank, um, more like a line of credit or um, a small business loan. And a really important way to get that money cheap is having a healthy credit score, business credit score. Um, you know, so, and I think like that's something that entrepreneurs maybe don't think about enough is first of all, I need to separate my business and personal expenses. I need to have a separate credit card. I need to be accountable to my business credit card or any other loan that is um, in the name of the business so that I build a healthy credit score. Because if I do need to go, like if shit hits the fan and I need to be able to make payroll to have that line of credit at a cheap rate, because equity is almost always the most expensive type of, you know, mm -hmm. it, it is the most expensive type of financing. So to, to know that you could have, um, another option and it, and it's, it's, it's based on you. You're the person who knows that you can be accountable, um, to build a good credit score because you're accountable to your payments is it's a really empowering feeling. Like I, I personally love that. And I, it's part of our story. I, you know, stash wealth is, um, it's a hundred percent bootstrapped to date. Um, and at least in our 12 month plan, we don't have any plans to raise, um, which is pretty incredible to be able to say building a wealth management firm. Um, and part of it is just, we've been really smart about 
keeping these lines of credit available to us and using them when we need to make investments or strategic, you know, uh, decisions. Um, and I don't think enough people realize that that's an option besides just going out and being sexy and getting an angel. <laughs> well, and they're so hard to come by, especially in, you know, service type businesses. True. Nobody wants to invest in those. True, um, very true. They're, they're hard to invest in. They're hard to sell later on, um, unless you're really strategic about how you consciously are building your business because so many of them are you know based on the founder or the main mm -hmm. person um and so i think it's because you know angels and vcs are so publicized um we think it's you know it's just a choice for us but there's a lot of um they're just not that interested in service-based businesses that's um so sometimes it's just not an option so Talk to me a little bit about the business credit score and how folks could go about kind of proactively making sure that they are managing that credit appropriately and um, making sure that they are building a good score. Uh, well, I mean, at the end of the day, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is the most important thing to do is to pay uh it works very similar to a personal credit score, right? In in that when you um, it, it it directly ties to how lenders see you in terms of reliability, um, and and they're deciding how likely you are to pay them back, right? So the higher your score, the better. That means they think your business has uh, a likelihood of paying them back on time, or and and that's all built based on the history of the bills you have been paying. So be pay your bills on time. Um, make sure to, uh, diversify, um, make sure not to mix your business and personal expenses. But I think that also relates a little bit more to taxes, which we can certainly talk about. Um, but yeah, making on-time payments, those are all critical to build a, building a good, uh, business credit score. Okay. So is there anything you think we should talk about that we haven't yet? I think I alluded to one of the things earlier, which was a SEP account. I don't think entrepreneurs, this stuff isn't taught in school, right? Like there's no, no entrepreneurial school, but <laughs> there um, should be, but there isn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, funny enough, I actually heard the other day about, oh, you know what it was? Oh gosh, this is funny. Actually, maybe this is worth it. I'll mention it, but um, are you listening to the podcast? We crashed. It's no, about, it's a, it's a six part series about we work called we crashed oh. uh, um but uh one of the parts that i was listening to was um adam newman's wife created a school called we grow and they were teaching these young i'm talking preschool and kindergarten level children on the the the, the sort of mechanics of entrepreneurship so it has nothing to do with this, what I'm about to say, but I just, I, I don't know, that just popped into my head. Um, it should be taught in school, maybe not by WeWork, but... Um, <laughs> probably uh, not. Probably not. Um, they were talking, they were on the podcast, they were talking about like the hubris, you know, it's like once you think you're good at one thing, like co-working spaces, you think you're good at everything, like raising and educating children. Um, it's a little, <laughs> little crazy, but anyway, I'm going on a tangent. Um, so you, utilizing a SEP account um, as, a, as a way to siphon money towards retirement. I'm, I'm sure you talk about this, but I just think it's worth mentioning. Uh, and then I talked about the other thing earlier, which is just creating that runway for your uh, runway of savings before you leave your job and start your business. I think those are just two points that are worth reiterating um, for, for entrepreneurs who are at least, or, or, or individuals who are con considering that entrepreneurial path. Uh, make sure to give yourself adequate cash because as much time as you think it'll take, it'll probably take double. Always and in double. our, in, in our case, <laughs> and in our case at stash triple, 
Um, it took three times as long to really start generating the revenue that we needed to be able to sustain ourselves. And my co-founder didn't even join the company full time until 2016, which was three years in. Um, so yeah, I I love the idea of talking about the runway before you jump full into the business. That was um, a big uh, personal thing for me. So I had eight years, I think, where I was working full time and we had businesses before we got to the point of me feeling comfortable just stepping full time into the business. And I think there's so much um, marketing, maybe there, there's so much chat that's like, oh, just quit and go all in on your business. And um, at least for me, my personal experience was that having that cushion having having that runway and knowing that my bills were paid allowed me to be so much more flexible and make much more much different choices in my business about what i wanted to spend money on and if i wanted to invest in my business and all of those things are it just takes the pressure off and i yeah, think yeah. that it i mean when i hear folks that are like oh i'm just gonna quit i'm like ah well, you know what I blame the culprit, um, and I've talked about this publicly in a couple couple articles, is Instagram. I think Instagram is such a disservice to entrepreneurship. It completely paints it in this like once again romanticized uh, fashion, you know. But it is it is a ton of work, a ton of Trader Joe's burritos. Uh, very yeah, everybody's not sleep. sitting on the beach in their laptop. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that 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 picture that Instagram puts out there is is completely false, and it depends, I guess, if you're. There's a difference, right? And I think sometimes people confuse entrepreneurship with freelance work. Like those are mm -hmm. two very very different things. And one of the books that I love that talks about it is E Myth. Mm. Um, uh, which, uh, Emith is, I, I love that book so much. I, I consider it a beach read. It's a business book that is so fun and easy to read and so quick to read. I, I, I literally call it a beach read, but, um, does a really good job distinguishing between, are you looking to be in the business of exchanging your time for money, which is more freelancing, or are you in the business of entrepreneurship, which is to build a company that, you know, it, it exchanges time for, or rather money for a service. Um, so those are two very different things and you need to be clear up front which one, which path you're going down. Um, and then the quote that I love on entrepreneurship that I, I uh, mentioned from time to time, it's from Biz Stone, co-founder of Twitter. Um, he says, timing, perseverance, and 10 years of trying makes you look like an overnight success. Yep. And that's, that's really so, what it is. <laughs> that's so funny. I was, um, so I... Uh, when I quit my job, I was like tweeting or texting back with one of my entrepreneurial friends. And she was like, oh, you know, your journey is build a business, crash, build a second business, crash, work consistently for eight years, then you made it. And exactly. I think that's pretty much everybody's real, like the real story behind the scenes is much more, um, that's a much more typical story than the overnight unicorns. 100%. If you want to go viral, work on it for eight to 10 years. You will probably go viral. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. So I think that's a great note to end it on. Where can our listeners find you if they want to connect and learn more about what you do? Absolutely. So um, certainly check out www.stashwealth.com. You can find us on Instagram at stashwealth. And you can find me on Instagram at Priya Milani Official. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Managing your cash isn't something to be scared of or intimidated by, and there are some real concrete steps you can take to start managing your risks with your cash. Now, during this episode, we mentioned the Profit First system. It's a great foundation to get you started understanding where you're spending and saving your cash. Another really useful exercise is just to start understanding what your monthly rate of spending is. So look at how much cash went out the door each month on average for your last 12 months. That's a great benchmark to start with. And then you can use that number to compare it to how much cash you have in the bank right now and calculate how many months of cash you have on hand. But be sure to exclude any tax savings accounts that you might have set aside. If you're comfortable with where you are cash wise, great. If not, you can start thinking about how to start building up those reserves. Next week, I'm talking to Luke Fry from TimberTax about financial risk number two, taxes. We're going to answer some common tax questions and talk about what your relationship with your tax professional should really look like and feel like. So make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss it. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode is edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Rundbeck.